0: Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy, which is a proud sponsor of this Oncology Pharmacy podcast. You know, it's it's February 28th. It's the end of February, which is the month of the year that I like the least. So I'm glad to see February end and excited for March to come in. One of my favorite months of the year. And been a busy time here. So I admit that. Uh, don't have anything real, um, you know, none of our landmarks, none of our hallmarks, um, nothing like that planned. We've had a few recent FDA approvals like PEMBRO for um, adjuvant treatment of melanoma for stage three patients and, uh, and tapiracil uh, trifluridine approval for, uh, you know, the third line for gastric esophageal cancer, but nothing too exciting to talk about. So I want to just go through um, kind of an, a new approach to this and go over some lessons learned so, kind of clinical pearls um, that I've recently come across in clinical practice, and then go through, um, you know, kind of what I've, what what has been of interest to me this week, as far as this week, as far as what's come across my email inbox from email tabled contents and my Twitter feed and things like that. So, we have uh, at our practice site started an oral chemo pilot program. Uh, we have a specialty pharmacy on site that's able to you know uh, service uh, say half of our patients on on specialty pharmaceuticals uh, in the in the oral or in the uh, in the cancer center the other half uh, you know you know get their their et cetera, their ibrutinib from a, a specialty pharmacy available mail order and so we've done a pilot program with a couple of the physicians to to target them and and provide really the the standard of care so to speak and I'll use standard in quotes but if you read any publications looking at pharmacist involvement with oral chemotherapy they all tend to be about uh, about this plan and that's a face-to-face education session Going over how to take the drug, looking for drug interactions, problems with disease states, um, a weekly follow-up via phone or face-to-face for the first month or first cycle, and then monthly thereafter, and then you know appropriate intervention with the oncologist or primary care physician for any problems that come up. Uh, so we've been doing this for a while, and um, you know, in, in my role as as host producer of the podcast, as well as uh, as well as a faculty member here you know, I I try to stay on top of of big picture stuff with everything, but it's not until I actually have an opportunity to talk to patients taking these drugs and educate them that I kind of get into the weeds on some of the specifics. So I wanted to share uh, a couple stories from last week. So, and we're going to use, you know, pseudonyms for these patients. So I'm going to talk about Cody. Cody's not his real name. Cody in quotes. Uh, And Cody has myelofibrosis and Recently started ruxolitinib, and this is the first time that I've I've counselled a patient on on ruxolitinib, despite it being around for for five or so years. So anyway, I won't get into into the details of everything with Cody's story. Uh, Cody, uh, you know, I talked to Cody doing the face-to-face education. Cody brought all his medications, which I'd asked him to do. Went over everything. There are a few small issues with his meds that um, you know we talked through. But as far as ruxolitinib, there is uh, a possibility. Uh, and in about 25% of patients, or on average, patients will see their cholesterol go up about 25%. Now, I was worried when I first read this with Cody because Cody has had uh, a heart attack in the past uh, and is on uh, you know, a moderate-intensity statin. So, uh, and we don't have recent lipid panels in our system, so I'm talking to Cody about this. And uh, fortunately, I, I had done some, uh, some homework before, before I met with Cody because I wasn't sure what to make of this increase in cholesterol. And it turns out there's uh, some nice work in publication looking not just at cholesterol levels as they change over time in patients with myelofibrosis on ruxilinid, but also other markers of of what they call nutritional status, including albumin. So what, what had been known previously is that patients with myelofibrosis are more likely to have a low cholesterol level and hypoalbuminemia and other markers of nutritional status and then after starting ruxolitinib and getting their myelofibrosis under control, having their spleen shrink so they can uh, you know, eat more uh, and have a more normal diet, yes, their cholesterol levels go up, uh, but also their albumin levels go up. And this seems to suggest that uh, the drug itself is maybe not causing hypercholesterolemia, but patients are able to have a more complete diet and therefore are eating more, which is a good thing. Uh, and in most cases, from what the, the data suggest or show, is that while cholesterol levels go up on average of 25%, they don't go to a hypercholesterol level to the point that we would worry. But it is something I did counsel Cody about. Cody already, has a, uh, already had an appointment scheduled with his primary care doctor for, uh, for Lipids to look at that. And at the end of the interview, I said, so what are the two things you're gonna tell you're gonna tell your, your PCP to be aware of? And Cody was able to tell me uh, that the cholesterol go up, and then he forgot the second one. And that's why you asked, tell me what you're going to say, and, and use that teach-back method. The second thing I wanted Cody to be aware of is that um, in running a drug interaction screen, surprisingly, uh, ruxolitinib flagged as a drug interaction with Cody's beta blocker. In fact, the Canadian labeling has a specific uh, warning in the package insert, apparently, about ruxolitinib being a drug that can cause bradycardia, and that it... Uh, prolongs the PR interval possibly, but incre- or decreases the pulse by an average of like 6 to 10 beats per minute. Uh, so Cody was on a beta blocker, and if you look in the, the package insert, the risk of bradycardia is less than 1%, but since he was on a beta blocker, and I'd have been taking Ruxolitinib in him for about a week, you know, very simply I was able to to ask Cody to, to see his arm and to, to measure his pulse real quick, and it was slow, but, you know, obviously he walked in and walked out, and that was the second thing I wanted uh, his PCP to be aware of, was that uh, this drug could could slow his heart rate down and maybe the beta blocker dose might need to be decreased. Uh, you know, another thing that that I had heard about and knew of kind of conceptually is that there is a withdrawal syndrome with ruxolitinib. Uh, and now that I was going to be face-to-face with a patient, taking it, I wanted Cody to be aware that he shouldn't stop the drug abruptly because of this withdrawal symptom, but I wasn't quite sure exactly what that was. Um, so looking into it, you know, Patients suddenly stopping the drug can have fever, respiratory distress, uh, decrease in blood pressure, cytopenias, multi-organ failure, septic shock, you know, pretty scary stuff. And it's pretty well described from the folks at the Mayo Clinic. Um, so that was, that was a counseling point as well. Uh, so Cody knows uh, in case, for example, Cody gets him into the hospital for, you know, who knows, uh, you know, some cardiac procedure. Uh, and they, you know, they, they're just like, you can't take your ruxolitinib here. Well, that's a discussion that we need to have and discuss the risk benefits before another team stops that drug. And then also, I counselled the risk of infections with ruxolitinib as a Janus kinase or JAK one and two inhibitor, which is why it works for myelofibrosis. Um, Janus kinase is involved in hematopoiesis, and in fact, is is used is used for uh, for graft versus host disease, which should give you an idea that it's pretty darn immunosuppressive. So that was also a good counselling point. Uh, about getting uh, flu vaccine, um, the the new uh, Shingrits, the inactivated varicella zoster vaccine, and that kind of stuff. So anyway, very very enlightening counseling session for me, and and I think also for Cody. Uh, the other uh, drug that I had some first time one on one involvement with was quote Corey again, not his real name. So Corey has out positive non small cell lung cancer, um, and so. You know, on, a, on an exam, I would know that the drug of choice here is electinib based on the ALEC study and that it was superior to crizotinib, and it's got great penetration into the blood-brain barrier, prevents uh, the recurrence or the occurrence of CNS progression better than crizotinib. Uh But again, first time talking to a patient and preparing, uh, you get into some of these details. And the first of which is that uh, the dose here is 600 milligrams twice a day, And it is in 150 milligram capsules as a dosage form. So this is a pretty high pill burden, or in this case, a high capsule burden—eight capsules a day. Uh, And Corey is not uh, the best at swallowing oral dosage forms. In fact, uh, the question came up very early in the counseling. uh, You know, can I can I open up these capsules and sprinkle them in applesauce? Because that's what I do for another medication. Because I have trouble swallowing. The package insert is very clear: do not open uh, or crush these capsules in any way or dissolve them. Now, does that mean something bad is going to happen? We don't know, but it hasn't been studied. Uh, so I had to tell, I had to tell Corey, you, you know, these are capsules. You can put it, you can put the whole capsule in a little bit of applesauce and it should slide right down because the capsules aren't too big. Um, but you can't open up the capsules and dissolve them like you are for some of your other medications. Um, so without a face-to-face education session, I don't know if that question comes up, and maybe Corey does open up those capsules, sprinkle them with applesauce, and who knows what that does to the integrity. It's a great research project for any pharmacist out there who have access to patients on electinib and uh, have the ability to, to measure that and, and you know, maybe do a couple N of 1 studies to, to figure out if that is safe and stable for patients. That would be very useful. Um, so the electinib needs to be taken with food. Uh, And that's because there is an increased absorption and bioavailability, uh, increased AUC of both the parent drug and the active metabolite, which is called M4 in the package insert. Corey likes pancakes. And I said, you you know, you should take this with breakfast and then with an evening meal. And he said, well, what about pancakes? Will that work? And I said, well, you know, it, it gets in the system better uh, if there's some fat in that. So do you put butter on your pancakes? And he did. I said, oh, this is going to change your life. Put some butter on those pancakes before you pour the syrup on. It's going to taste better, and you'll get more of the electinib into your system. Uh, also, uh, Corey was on an enzyme-inducing anti-epileptic drug, and by some minor miracle, that uh, doesn't interact with electinib. We have data uh, from the package insert that rifampin and electinib did not significantly change the pharmacokinetics of electinib, which is great. Uh, There also needs to be LFT and CPK monitoring for the first two weeks of the first month, which we were able to get done there. Um, You know, the most common side effect with a that's kind of odd was edema uh, in about 30% of patients, which Corey did go on to experience, and and that was helped a a little bit by elevating his legs. Uh, And then also some increased blood glucose monitoring because Corey does have hyperglycemia, uh, and so far that's been Okay. So those are just you know maybe some clinical pearls there um, about, uh, you know, if there's one thing you're ever involved with in counseling a patient on an oral antineoplastic or a ruxolitinib, whatever the drug may be, first and foremost, make sure patients know how to take it with, without food, how much to take, things like that. Uh, you know you, you just can't assume that because that's when problems happen. You know what happens when you assume. So those are the lessons that I learned this week, and we're going to move on now to, you know, what caught my eye. And there are about, you know, four studies that I thought uh, you might be interested in hearing. Uh, the first being the updated results of Keynote 24, and this was this just came out yesterday in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. So Keynote 24 landmark paper uh, for patients with uh, metastatic advanced non-small cell lung cancer with uh, a pdl one tumor proportion score of 50% or higher, randomized to pembrolizumab or chemo, overall survival benefit with pembrolizumab. Uh, well, this is the updated survival analysis, and so we know that there was an overall, overall survival benefit early on. So we want to see, does that overall survival benefit, is it maintained over time, or is there some rapid progression or something like that? So the 12-month overall survival uh, percentages here for Pembro, 70.3% compared to 54.8%. We kind of knew that. That's a difference, absolute benefit from Pembro of 15.5% in terms of one-year overall survival. So a difference of 15.5. 24 months, so a year later, so our two-year overall survival uh, percentages are 51.5% for Pembro versus 34.5% with chemo. That's a difference of 17%, uh, absolutely. So by seeing this longer follow, the Kaplan-Meier curves, uh, they don't come close together. They actually continue to separate just a little bit. Uh, suggesting that the benefit may be greater over time for PEMBRA up front for these patients with a high, above 50% PD-L1 expression. So that's encouraging to see. Always great to see long-term follow-up. The initial publication gets the New England Journal of Publication, but the follow-up publication in in JCO, which is a great journal, um, may not get as much buzz as that initial publication. But it's always important to look at those long-term follow-up results. Speaking of long-term follow-up, we have also uh, this morning in JCO, or last night five-year follow-up of the Bright study, another landmark study. And this war, uh, our patient these this was a study of patients with indolent non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and mantle cell, which we now know maybe we shouldn't combine those two patients into one cohort. Uh, mantle cell is not an indolent lymphoma for most people, but in any event, uh, these patients were randomized to either RCHOP chop and R- or RCVP, so those patients were, were grouped together. You guys are familiar with RCHOP, RCVP is RCHOP exactly, except no docetaxel. So RCHOP, RCVP, or bendamustine rituximab. Uh, so early on, you know, this was a non-inferiority study. BR was was just as good, maybe better. People were excited when this came out. You could do two drugs instead of five for these patients, or instead of four if you're going to do RCVP. Uh, I remember it, there was chatter on listservs about, oh, we're going to use so much more bendamustine; it's so expensive; it's going to drive our our pharmacy budgets through the roof. Well, our five-year follow-up shows a progression-free survival benefit for musting So, five-year, uh, the rate of progression-free survival was sixty-five point five percent with musting compared to fifty-five point eight percent with our chopper RCDP. That's almost a difference. That is a difference of almost ten. That's pretty sizable a uh, magnitude of benefit but that is progression-free survival and these at least the indolent non-hodgkins lymphoma is a slow-growing disease when you look at the five-year overall survival uh, it is 81.7 percent with bendamustine compared to a numerically higher 85 percent with RCHOP RCVP always a little puzzling when there's a progression-free survival benefit with a drug or combination um, and not an overall survival benefit. Now, you would probably not expect to see an overall survival benefit with an indolent lymphoma, but you would hope the trend is still in the direction of the progression-free survival benefit. And here it's, it's inverted. You know, BR is pretty clearly superior with regards to progression-free survival, but it's less in overall survival, at least numerically. Now, that's not a statistically significant difference in overall survival. Now, when you break that out, again, indolent non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, mostly follicular, and mantle cell are different diseases and often treated differently these days. Well, for the indolent non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, the progression-free survival curves are almost overlap, and there is an overall survival trend, not a statistically significant difference, but a trend favoring R-CHOP or RCVP or rituximab. If you look at mantle cell lymphoma patients, the progression-free survival curves start to separate pretty Dramatically in favor of bendamustine at about the 10-month mark. Uh, and the overall survival uh, trend favors bendamustine, again, not statistically significant. So when you look at this, what it looks like is that, you know, BR is probably better for those with mantle cell lymphoma compared to RCHOP, RCVP. And we, we've known that RCHOP not good enough for, for mantle cell lymphoma for a long time, and we're seeing patients get R-Hyper-C bad or Hyper-C bad. Uh, with, you know, bortezomib replaced uh, in there instead of encristine in and then getting transplant. So we know mantle cell is more of an aggressive disease than we have given it credit for historically in the past. Uh, another interesting bit from this uh, paper was a higher rate of secondary malignancies uh, in the bendamustine rituximab group, 19% of patients had a secondary malignancy with Mendomustine Rituximab compared to 11.2 in the r or RCVP. Now, 7.6 of these patients total in the mustine group had a non-melanoma skin cancer. So the, the relevance of that to practice uh, is, is maybe a little unclear, but certainly is, is of concern with any nitrogen mustard like mustine. Uh, the next, the third of the fourth studies that caught my eye is Checkmate 5.11. So this is looking at nivolumab and ipilimumab, two different dosing schedules in advanced melanoma. And let's back up a little bit to Checkmate 67, which was the landmark study in advanced or metastatic melanoma that compared uh, nivolumab uh, to ipilimumab to nevo plus ipi together. Uh, Now, the nevo plus ipi together arm was 1 mg per kg of nivolumab plus ipi, 3 mg per kg. So the standard dose of ipilimumab, or at least the original standard dose of ipilimumab for melanoma, and then a lower dose of nivolumab. That dosing scheme of NEVA1-IPI3 came from a prior phase one study that showed NIVA one ipi 3 so more IPI, had a greater complete response rate the Nevo three IPI one, so the normal dose of Nevo and a lower dose of IPI, uh, and that's why it was chosen for the phase three study. And what that phase three study ended up showing at the four-year overall survival uh, landmark analysis was a 53% overall survival at four years for the combination of uh, Nevo one IPI three. So four, year le- four years later, metastatic disease, half of patients uh, are still alive. Pretty amazing. Uh, Nevo alone, 46%. So. Almost as good, uh, and then IPI uh, 30 percent for your overall survival rate. And I believe this study that was designed only to compare Nevo and IPI to IPI, or Nevo to IPI. There wasn't a formal statistical comparison, at least in the early publication of Nevo and IPI compared to Nevo. And because the Nevo and IPI arm, as you might expect, was very toxic, many folks have just done n- the the Nivolumab group, Nivolumab, or maybe Pembrolizumab as well, instead of doing the Nevo IPI combination because of the high rate of toxicity all right this brings us back to checkmate 511 just published in jco this week so this is looking at the nevo 1 ip3 dosing which is the fda approved and then what to, to me seems like the the smarter way to go which is nevo 3 ip1 so normal dose nivolumab three mix per keg every two weeks and then ipilimumab Uh, one mix per cake as opposed to three mix per cake. And the primary endpoint of this study is safety. So what they saw in regards of grade three to five treatment-related adverse events, so these have been serious adverse events that hospitalized patients, put them in the ICU, or killed them. Uh, a higher rate of treatment-related adverse events in grade three or five in the the nevo one ipi three. So high dose or the the higher dose ipi had forty eight point three percent grade three or five treatment-related adverse events compared to just thirty three point nine percent. That's a difference of almost fifteen percent in favor of the nevo three mix per kg ipi one mix per kg. And in the higher dose ipi group, more diarrhea, more thyroid problems, more hepatotoxicity. Um, it was not designed necessarily as the primary endpoint to look at FC, but the complete response rate was 15 versus 13.5%. And the progression-free survival and overall survival curves are almost superimposable only at a median follow-up of 12 months, however. So, uh, you know, the bottom line here is less IPI is less toxic, not necessarily surprising. Uh, so, s- again, we would need to figure out uh, which patients benefit the most from this combination uh, regimen. Um, again, that's the, common theme in oncology these days is, is doing our best to find patients up front who we know will benefit or who would not benefit from uh, these new targeted therapies speaking of that uh, we get our first clue of which types of patients may not do the best with pablo and hormone uh, receptor positive her 2 negative metastatic breast cancer this is also from this week in the in journal of clinical oncology uh, and this is a, this is a hypothesis a hypothesis-generating outcome. This is not something ready for practice. Uh, for one thing, the assay that used is not a clinical assay. It's a research assay, so you can't apply this right away. But we get an idea that high levels of cyclin E1, as measured by CCNE1 mRNA, uh, which encodes for cyclin E1, that patients uh, taking palbocyclop and fulvestrant that had high levels of cyclin E1 did poorer on palpocyclib fulvestrant than those who had low levels of cyclin E1. And the theory here is that cyclin E1 is the cyclin in cyclin-dependent kinase E2, or cyclin-dependent kinase 2 So cyclin E1 activates CDK2, and that can bypass the inhibition of cyclin-dependent kinases four and six and serve as as basically a mechanism of resistance to palpocyclic. So again, similar uh, idea that we've talked about before, trying to figure out these biomarkers that allow us to cherry pick which patients are gonna do best with a certain treatment, such as PD-L1 expression above 50% with PEMBRO in the first line setting, or patients who maybe are not gonna do so great with a therapy, perhaps like high cyclin E1 expression in second line treatment of palpocycline. And that's another maybe problem with that study is we use CDK inhibitors in the first line in most of these patients nowadays. Well, that's what I learned this week Uh, I hope you learned something from what I learned this week. Uh, And uh, thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNib, all the podcasts, at OncoFarmPod, which is the same handle where where you will find me on Insta. Uh, You can uh, find the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Uh, Give us a a good rating review. Tell us what you'd like to hear. Um, And as always, it's always important for you to remember that doses matter you.